today we're delving into a topic that, despite its significance, hasn't been explored in any of our previous 260-plus episodes. We're discussing a condition that affects millions worldwide, yet many of us know little about its origins, impacts, and the groundbreaking ways we can manage, treat, and possibly prevent this disease. Today, we're talking about Parkinson's disease. Our discussion highlights the intersection of environmental factors, lifestyle choices, and innovative medical advancements that are reshaping our understanding of this condition. Stay tuned as we uncover the mysteries of a disease that has puzzled scientists for centuries, exploring its historical context, current challenges, and the hopeful paths leading towards a healthier future. This episode promises to be an enlightening journey, offering vital insights for anyone looking to safeguard their health as they age. Hello, and welcome to the Over 50 Health and Wellness Show. I'm your host, Kevin English. I'm the founder of The Silver Edge, and our mission is to help you build and maintain a lean, healthy body that you love for the rest of your life, so you can show up in the second half of your life as the healthiest, strongest, most vital version of yourself. We have a fantastic show for you today. Dr. Ray Dorsey is here, and he's not only going to educate us on Parkinson's disease, but he's going to empower and challenge us to join him in the fight to end Parkinson's disease once and for all. If you're wondering how to reduce your risk for Parkinson's disease, as well as your loved ones, you won't want to miss a word of this episode. This episode is brought to you by Energy Bits. Imagine starting every day feeling revitalized and ending it with a sense of rejuvenation. That's the promise of Energy Bits. They are the gold standard in chlorella and spirulina nutrition. Each morning, I kickstart my day with Energy Bits Spirulina. This is a powerhouse of antioxidants, omega-3s, and over 40 essential vitamins and minerals. It's not just food, it's rocket fuel for your day, boosting your energy, sharpening your focus so that you can take on anything that life throws your way. But that's only half the story. In the evening, I take their chlorella. This little green marvel is bursting with chlorophyll, vitamins, minerals, and it supports immune function, speeds up recovery, and nurtures gut health. It's like a nightly tune-up for your body, ensuring you're always running at peak performance. I personally recommend starting with their Vitality Bits. This is a perfect 50-50 blend of spirulina and chlorella, so it's the best of both worlds, tailored to those of you that refuse to compromise on your health and vitality. If you'd like to learn more, head over to SilverEdgePartners.com and click on the Energy Bits icon. And as a thank you for being a listener, you can enjoy a 20% discount off your purchase with the coupon code SilverEdge at checkout. That's SilverEdge all run together, no spaces. My guest today is Dr. Ray Dorsey. Dr. Ray is the David M. Levy Professor of Neurology at the University of Rochester, where he leads the Innovative Center for Health and Technology. Over the last decade, Dr. Ray has pioneered the use of telemedicine to drastically improve the quality of care for individuals battling Parkinson's disease. His groundbreaking research has not only graced the pages of premier neurology, medical, and economic journals, but he's also captured the attention of NPR, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. As the co-author of the book, Ending Parkinson's Disease, Dr. Ray is at the forefront of the fight against this challenging condition. Join us today as Dr. Ray shares his insights into Parkinson's disease, its treatment, and the promising future of preventing it. 
I started our conversation today by asking Dr. Ray how he got interested in the subject of Parkinson's disease. Well, my, both my parents were psychiatrists, so I like to say I rebelled and became a neurologist. <laughs> and during my neurology training, you know, you look at different areas like stroke and seizures and, and the like. And I started caring for people with Parkinson's disease in clinic. And I really like caring for older adults. And you can make people better with Parkinson's disease. It's a very treatable condition. And so that really appealed to me in the last five years or so. I come to the conclusion that in addition to being treatable, it's a really preventable disease that your listeners can take actions today for, to lower their risk and ideally prevent themselves from ever developing this debilitating disease. All right. So yeah, treatable, manageable. We're going to dig into all of that. So in terms of Parkinson's disease, let's just back all the way up and tell us what it is. What is Parkinson's disease? So uh, Parkinson's disease is a neurological disorder that's classically been associated with a tremor. So it's maybe the most common symptom, not universal, but about two thirds of people have a tremor. Almost everyone has slowness of movement. It takes them longer to do things, anything from shaving to the, the brushing their teeth to eating to getting dressed, stiffness, and then difficulties with walking and balance. It's also the world's fastest growing brain disease. It increases incidence. The number of new cases triples every decade beginning in the 40s. So your listeners, unfortunately, are, are at high risk uh, for developing this disease. And as we'll discuss, even though we consider it a brain disease, we think the roots of Parkinson's disease increasingly don't actually begin in the brain, but begin in the gut or in the nose. Ooh, okay. So yeah, lots that I want to unpack there. We'll come back to that. So what... What are the origins? When when did we discover Parkinson's disease? You mentioned that it seems like every decade it's tripling. Did I hear that right? Yes. So when, Parkinson's disease, the first major description of Parkinson's disease was doc, by Dr. James Parkinson, who in 1817 in London saw something new on the streets of London. At the time, London's the, the capital of the Industrial Revolution, and 1817 is the height of the Industrial Revolution. And among the London fog, among toxic air, equivalent to the air pollution that some of us experienced in the Norse, Northeast past summer from the Canadian wildfires, he saw something new. He said, tremor has long been since described. All these other previous physicians have described uh, tremor, but this tremor, this uh, slowness of movement, this stoop posture, the shuffling gait, this is new, something that's not been classified in medical literature. And he described six people with this new disease. He didn't call it Parkinson's disease. He called it a shaking palsy. And 200 years later, the global burden of disease estimated that over 6 million people have the disease. So we went from something that was really rare, likely in 1817, six individuals with the disease, to something that was really, really common 200 years later, affecting over 6 million people and over a million Americans today. All right. So let's get right into it then. So that we've got our history here of Parkinson's disease. We know that it is, it is growing it's i think you even describe it in your book as a pandemic uh what what's the cause what's causing this probably a, a nuanced question right that's maybe multifactorial but let's let's dig into what what are the causes of parkinson's well, I think, disease i think the most common cause i think the principal causes of parkinson's disease are environmental toxicants so things in our environment that are man-made that are fueling the rise of parkinson's disease I alluded to air pollution, which likely was likely, but we don't know, but likely a major contributing factor to the uh, first individuals uh, with Parkinson's disease that Dr. Parkinson described. Air pollution in 1800 London uh, was as bad as it is in Delhi, India today, 20 times worse than it is in London today. 
and as bad as it was in New York City this past June when the Big Apple skies were orange. So just imagine, you know, where are you, where are you based, Kevin? I'm in North Carolina, coastal North yeah. Carolina. So you probably got a little bit of the air pollution, but you know, in the Northeast, it was just terrible. You, you, yeah. I, I literally, I, I like to bike. And when I was biking to work, I was wearing the mask, not because of anything to do with COVID, but because of the toxic effects uh, of the air. So air pollution is likely a major factor. Two other major factors. One, second is certain pesticides. Many pesticides are nerve toxins and they were created, synthetic man-made ones were created in World War II and DDT and pesticides like that saved lots of people from ever getting malaria. But unfortunately, after coming out of World War II, we started using them indiscriminately, an increase in pesticide use between 40 and 80 fold of DDT. And this led Rachel Carson in 1962 to write Silent Spring, warning about the indiscriminate use of pesticides and their untoward uh, health effects. And we should have listened a little more carefully to it. One pesticide called Paraquat is associated with a 150% increased risk of Parkinson's disease. It's sprayed on corn, cotton, and vineyards today. Over 30 countries, including China, have banned it, but the U.S. has not. And then the third and perhaps most surprising, at least to me, are dry cleaning chemicals. So this is a really, really simple dry cleaning chemical. Your listeners remember from chemistry that water is made up of three atoms, H2O, two hydrogens, and one oxygen. This chemical, which is used in dry cleaning and its cousin, this is called trichloroethylene. It's made up of six atoms, two carbons in black for those uh, watching, one hydrogen in white, and then three chlorine atoms in green. Its cousin, perchloroethylene, is still widely used in dry cleaning today, two uh, carbon atoms and four chlorine atoms, and it's named perchloroethylene or tetrachloroethylene. These chemicals are associated with a 500% increased risk of Parkinson's disease are known to cause cancer, at least trichloroethylene, and are the same chemicals that contaminated the marine-based Camp Lejeune and led Marines there to have a 70% increased risk of developing Parkinson's disease, led the Marines there to have increased risk of ALS, increased risk of cancer, increased risk of miscarriages, increased risk of babies born without brains. So these chemicals are quite toxic, especially at high doses, and I think they're responsible for a large portion of Parkinson's disease. Okay, we've got these three major factors here. We've got air pollution, pesticides, and these, oddly enough, like you said, dry cleaning chemicals. Why, let's leave air pollution aside, but when we talk about pesticides, and I think folks might know glyphosate, like Roundup, maybe Paraquat's a a new one to them, but we know we have these, these, this class of pesticides, herbicides, things of that nature, in wide use, and I've not heard that before about the dry cleaning until I was going through your book, the dry cleaning chemicals. Why are these, why are these allowed? Why are these, why do not more people understand that these are, that they have such alarming association with poor health? So I'm not sure. I'll give you a couple of possible explanations. One, the companies are maybe hiding their risks. So there was an expose from the British investigative newspaper called The Guardian, I think like frontline the United States. There are farmers suing the makers of Paraquat for what they think is their Parkinson's disease, which they think is related to Paraquat. The Guardian reviewed the documents that were filed as part of it and showed that alleged showed that the company, at least according to the reporting, knew about the toxic effects of Paraquat for 50 years and hid them. They knew, according to their own research that they did, that when they fed it to mice, rats, and rabbits, I think those are the three mammals that they fed it to, they developed the pathological features of Parkinson's. So the company knew from the 1960s, 25, 30 years before academic researchers knew 
at the toxic effects of it, of this chemical were linked Parkinson's in three different mammalian species. This is this. And they did other research knowing that, for example, there was a study that came out in the 1980s that showed in Canada a near perfect correlation between rates of pesticide use in rural areas of Canada and rates of Parkinson's disease. And they sought to discredit research. The research of scientists doing work in this field sought to prevent researchers, including one who sits across the street from me at the University of Rochester from sitting on an EPA panel reviewing the toxic effects of pesticides. This a deliberate production of ignorance has a, as a, as a word, it's called agnotology. My friend introduced it to me, an English professor, and he goes, Ray, don't you know what this is? This is agnotology. And, and so science is the production of knowledge, ideally for the benefit of the public. Agnotology is a deliberate production of ignorance, often for commercial gain. And so we've seen that with tobacco companies. We saw the tobacco executives in the 1990s go to Congress, put their right hand up, swear to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and to do anything but that. And, you know, millions of people have died um, because of the actions of tobacco companies concealing their risk. We see that today with social media companies. You know, you can see it uh, with the opioid uh, pandemic, and the list goes on and on. So I think one reason is I think companies deliberately hide their toxic uh, from the public. Second is, you know, we're not making our voices heard. You know, there's 1.2 million Americans who have Parkinson's disease. I've never seen a march on Washington from the 1.2 million Americans with Parkinson's disease saying we need to stop exposure uh, to these environmental toxicants. We did that in the 1980s when Candace Leitner, when her 12-year-old daughter was struck by a drunk driver and killed. Uh, four days later, she formed what would later become MAD. I went to the governor, Jerry Brown in California, I think every day for a year, made drinking and driving illegal in all 50 states. I raised that drinking age from 18 to 21, lowered the blood alcohol level to 0.08. To this year, every year, um, because of Candace Leitner and MAD, 10,000 fewer Americans are killed in drunk driving. That's 10,000 fewer students, high school students, 10,000 fewer high schools, 10,000 fewer communities not distraught, not destroyed because we don't drink and drive because it's socially unacceptable because people who are directly affected by the disease made their voices heard. If we do the same thing for Parkinson's disease, for Alzheimer's disease, for ALS, for a wide range of diseases that affect people over 50, I think we could create a world where these diseases are not increasingly common, but increasingly rare. Okay. So what I hear then is some of this responsibility then falls on us, the the consumer, the everyday. It, maybe this has to come from a grassroots movement. You know, I constantly we rail against big pharma, big medical, big food companies. We talk about just the you know the the billions and trillions of dollars and the financial reality of these systems, and it's it seems very much like a David and Goliath sort of thing. Well, how how can somebody like me fight back against this, but certainly making our voices heard. I wanted to ask you, Ray, when we when we talk about these kinds of, you know, paraquat and these dry cleaning chemicals and these other things and even air pollution to that that matter, do we have models in other countries, perhaps industrialized countries, where they've they've limited these and we've seen a reduction in Parkinson's and other neurological brain diseases? Or is this are these chemicals just so ubiquitous that maybe not so much? I mean, so in just one second, I would say the first responsibility here is to the wrongdoers. 
So the well, oh, hundred no, I'm I'm with you there. Yeah, yeah. but we need well, to like point well point well to me. Yeah, people yeah. sometimes blame the victim. You know, we're victims of all of this. You right. know, I never met either of my right. grandfathers because they both died prematurely from smoking related conditions. Never met my grandfathers, and there are lots of people who are dead today because the actions of wrongdoers, and these wrongdoers are not held accountable. We don't hold wrongdoers accountable. They only become emboldened and only push the envelope and seek to maximize profits at the cost and the subsidized cost of the public and individuals right. and their health. So there is some good news here. So the Netherlands, there's very few epidemiological studies, studies of human populations that have showed that the rates of Parkinson's have gone down. The only high quality study that I'm aware of is in the Netherlands, where they showed between 1990 and about 2010, the rates of Parkinson's disease, number of new cases of Parkinson's disease decreased by 60% in a really short period of time. 20 years, a 60% decrease in the number of new cases of Parkinson's disease. The researchers weren't sure why. I went back, looked backwards, and said, well, let's look at my three big environmental risk factors. It turned out that air pollution in the Netherlands in the decades leading up to this decline, air pollution levels decreased between 50 and 90% in the Netherlands in the decades before that. Air pollution today, you know, in Los Angeles is vastly better than it was in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Second, they were one of the first, among the first countries, I think, to ban Paraquat and get rid of, oh, and get rid of uh, DDT, I shouldn't say about Paraquat. They were, they looked at levels of some of these pesticides get dissolved in fat. And so you can measure pesticide levels in people's fatty tissues. And they showed levels of DDT and other pesticides like that drop between 75 and 90% in the decades leading up to this decline. And then third, this dry cleaning chemical, they measured it in, a, in the outdoor air and found it in 1981 to be among the lowest in all of Europe. So they had declines in air pollution, declines in pesticides that have been linked to Parkinson's and declines in these uh, dry cleaning chemical, which is also used for decreasing and other uses in the decades before this decline. Now, that was my looking backwards. That's not the ideal way to do research. So there's lots of caveats with that. But again, you at least you have an association between decline in these environmental toxins and subsequent decline in rates of Parkinson's disease. More generally, if you look at it, Areas of the world that are most industrialized, like the United States and Canada, have the highest rates of disease. Areas of the world that are least industrialized, like Sub-Saharan Africa, have the lowest rates of disease. And areas of the world that are undergoing the most rapid industrialization, like India and China, have the fastest increasing rates of Parkinson's. Yeah, there's the the curse of industrialization. We see that across the board with pretty much all disease, right? And I I suppose Parkinson and other brain-related diseases are are no exception. Now, when we... You had mentioned that Parkinson's disease is typically, it's the tremors that we're all probably familiar with. Um, what's happening? What What is the mechanism? Is there, I, I believe I've read that there's a loss of nerve cells in the brain that produces dopamine, but what's happening to cause this? And what is the, you had mentioned early on, you said, hey, this is treatable, it's manageable, but to my to my knowledge, it's not curable. Is that right? Yeah, not curable. So I think, there's a really smart Danish scientist named Dr. Per Borkhammer, and he's postulated two different models of Parkinson's disease and related disorders. One, which begins in the gut and then with the earliest symptoms, perhaps beginning with constipation and then problems controlling our autonomic nervous system, everything from our bladder to our blood pressure to sexual function, and then later having sleep disturbances and later developing tremor to a brain or nose first model of these diseases where the pathogen or their pathogen begins first begins in the nose, maybe leading to loss of smell, 
and then early on developing tremor and difficulties with movement. These toxicants, they can enter, you know, they can be ingested. So you can drink, you can eat pesticide contaminated food. You can drink pesticide contaminated well water, for example. You can inhale these things. You can inhale, inhale air pollution. You can inhale pesticides. You can inhale these any chemicals because they rarely evaporate. And I think the route by which these toxins enter our body determines whether you get this gut first pathology or this nose first pathology. I'll stop there. I don't want to get too technical, but I'll, I'll start there, stop there and let you ask follow-up questions. Okay. Yeah, no, that that's very interesting. So what, what occurs to me then is it, there, it's this environmental toxin exposure. And am I correct in saying that this disease typically strikes folks in our age demographic, meaning this podcast, 50s, 60s? Is, so if I am somebody in my 50s or 60s, is it too late? Either I've either I've got it, or are there things I can do now to ensure that I reduce my risk? In other words, is this like a lifetime of exposure of this is going to make me a more likely candidate, or is this like a an acute dose of this toxin is going to trigger this? Fantastic question. So, just the best analogy I can think of is smoking and lung cancer. So, you don't smoke a cigarette and develop lung cancer the next day. You don't eat a pesticide-contaminated apple and develop Parkinson's uh, the next day. It's likely years, likely decades, and maybe perhaps generations. So sometimes the relevant exposure could have happened in childhood. It could have even perhaps happened in utero. It could have happened when you were nursing. Some of these toxins, as I mentioned earlier, dissolve in fat, including this dry cleaning chemical and certain pesticides. And you can find them in the breast milk of nursing women. So it's possible that these exposures happen early on. That said, we know from the smoking literature that you stop smoking, even though you smoked a lot in the past, you stop smoking, you see physiological changes happen within minutes, if not hours, hours, if not minutes. And you see decreases in risks of heart disease, decreases in risk of lung cancer, decreases in risk of wide range of conditions fall within years and 10 years out. I think the rate of uh, risk of lung cancer is halved. I think by 20 years or something, it gets close to the normal age of population. No one's done those studies in Parkinson's disease, so we don't know. But I think it stands to reason. I wouldn't view it as a fait accompli that if I drink pesticide contaminated well water when I was, you know, five years old, then I'm going to develop Parkinson's disease. I would do everything in my power to decrease ongoing exposure to these toxicants. So buy organic, wash your fruits and vegetables with water and a, and a vegetable wash. I put a carbon filter on, on your water, avoid using pesticides in all shapes and forms, including in your house, including in your yard, including on golf courses, including on your kids' playgrounds and sports fields. Protect your head by wearing a helmet if you engage in sports with high risk of head trauma. I think there are like 25, 50 different things that each of us could do. Avoid uh, dry cleaning, uh, using dry cleaning clothes with these uh, chemicals that we can all do in our everyday lives to lower our risk of developing Parkinson's disease. And even really touch on diet and, and exercise. Okay, well, you read my mind because that's where I wanted to go next. So, yeah, uh, there's so there's this this very obvious advice of hey, let's reduce our toxin exposure right now because that's that's a good thing no matter what, right? And you had mentioned you briefly mentioned there head trauma. I believe head trauma is another is highly correlated, right? With if you have previous head trauma, if you played combat sports or something like that, you may be more likely to develop Parkinson's later Parkinson's disease later in life. Let's talk a little bit about diet and exercise. What role do those two things, so those are two things we talk about on this show all the time, 
how might they or might not they factor into my likelihood of, of developing Parkinson's disease? Let's do exercise first. So there's a famous neurologist, Sir William Gowers, in late 1800s, England. He wrote what was called the Bible of Neurology. He said, for people with Parkinson's disease, your life should be one of rest and basically absence of movement. He couldn't have been more wrong on that front. And so people with Parkinson's disease should be exercising. I tell my patients, ideally exercise an hour a day if they can do so. Uh, it turns out that exercise for people in their 50s, a vigorous exercise, the equivalent of three and a half hours of swimming or um, running a week can lower your risk um, of Parkinson's by 20%. So you can do actions, you know, in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, lower your risk of developing Parkinson's years later. And if I can lower my risk of developing Parkinson's by 20%, I'm going to do it, uh, especially by the needs uh, to do so. And it turns out for people with Parkinson's disease, it's really beneficial. And research has shown everything from yoga to Tai Chi to ballroom dancing to bicycling to rock steady boxing, you know, boxing without, you know, getting punched in the head. It can all be beneficial for people with uh, Parkinson's disease. It turns out that exercise releases growth factors in the brain that protect remaining nerve cells and can be quite beneficial for people with the disease. So exercise is probably Maybe the best thing we've done this century is identify, increasingly realize exercise is beneficial for people with Parkinson's disease and maybe beneficial in preventing people from ever developing the disease in the first place. Diet is a little bit less clear. Not surprisingly, people who eat a Mediterranean diet, low in animal products, high in fruits and vegetables appear to have a lower risk of developing Parkinson's disease. It may slow the rate of the progression uh, of the disease. I tend to think that there might be benefits to the Mediterranean diet and there are benefits to that diet for a wide range of conditions. I tend to think it's what you're not eating that might be most important in terms of what's not in your food. I'll give you an example. I think it was the 19 plus or minus uh, a pesticide called heptachlor, which dissolved in fat, had been banned in the United States. The Hawaiian Pineapple Association uh, wanted to use heptachlor to protect their crop. And so they got exemption to spray heptachlor on their pineapple crop. Pineapples, fine. But they then took the chop, the top of the pineapples, the green leafy part, they call it chop, and they fed it to cows. And so this chop had heptachlor on it. Cows ate the heptachlor. I mentioned that the heptachlor is fat soluble. So what do the cows do? They put it in their milk. That milk makes its way onto shelves of grocery stores in Hawaii where they tested it and found to have high levels, unsafe levels of heptachlor, leading to a recall of milk. Just so happened that researchers were studying health of older adults in Hawaii, and they found out that people who had high milk consumption in Hawaii had high rates of Parkinson's disease. And then when they looked at the brains of those who drank high levels of milk in Hawaii, they found fewer of these dopamine-producing nerve cells, which we know are lost in Parkinson's disease. And when they looked inside the brain, guess what they found inside the brain of people who drank lots of milk? They found the residue of that pesticide of heptachlor mm -hmm. in the brain uh, of those individuals. So they basically found the smoking gun uh, right there. So I, I get really concerned about these pesticides getting concentrated as you move up the food chain. And when you're eating an American uh, diet, a Western diet, you're eating high levels of meat, which might, and dairy products, which I still eat, which are concentrating these toxicants as you move up the food chain. So I get a little bit concerned, not so much about eating cheese, for example. I could more concerned about eating cheese that might have pesticides or other toxicants concentrated in it. 
Yeah, this, I mean, it just gets really tricky. Is it fair to say then that an animal that eats a pesticide crop, for example, is it more likely, we mentioned it's fat soluble, is it likely to be storing then this pesticide in its fat? So if I have a nice fatty piece of meat, I'm much more likely to have that, like you said, now this concentrate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, like, as opposed to saying they're dissolved in water. So like a lot of vitamins, for example, dissolve in water, those are peed out. Right. We're not so good at getting rid of fatty substances. So that's the concern. And then in terms of reducing my risk, obviously you had mentioned, Hey, look for organic where I can and eat. Let's be clear. Organic crops that you buy in your whole foods or whatever your equivalent of that is are still sprayed with most likely still sprayed with pesticides, herbicides, et cetera. They're just the organic ones. And, 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 and they have pesticide residue on them. So they, right. so and now, why don't you explain why that might be? Yeah. How, how would an organic crop have these pesticides? Let's, let's pick that well, up. I'm not a, a farmer. Bit. And if you're a farmer and you can tell me and educate me, just email me info at endingpd.org, <laughs> info at endingpd.org. I'm happy to be educated. I'm a neurologist. I'm not a toxicologist. I'm not a farmer. But for some reason, if you look at uh, pesticide residues on organic produce, it's still present. It's present at about one half the level of uh, none. Now, again, I'm a neurologist. My understanding is that many times organic produce is grown right next to uh, produce that's sprayed with typical conventional pesticides. Those pesticides can then drift and then go on uh, to organic uh, produce. And as you in- indicated, there are some uh, naturally occurring uh, pesticides, some of which are actually linked to Parkinson's disease as well. So just natural pesticides aren't necessarily safe uh, right. back to Parkinson's disease. So I buy organic, I, you know, I'm a physician, so I can afford to do so. But, you know, the cost of organic is way less than the cost of Parkinson's disease. And then I wash all my fruits and vegetables with water and a vegetable wash, which is basically soap for your vegetables, uh, because I don't want the consuming pesticides, even all my organic uh, produce. And I, I used to think the food I eat, the water I drink and the food and the air I breathe was safe. And I no longer feel that way. And so I take measures to limit my potential exposure to the stock. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I I think that, you know, most of us, we're doing the best we can, the average consumer, right? This is overwhelming to so many of us because it's such a big problem. And if I go to the grocery store and I buy the organic spinach, then, you know, how am I not, how am I not, you're, you know, how am I not doing the right thing? But the problem is, is our food system is so broken now that that spinach was probably, I'm here in North Carolina, that's spin, the spinach I'm eating in my local grocery store probably wasn't grown in North Carolina. In fact, it was probably grown in Central California. It was grown in a monocrop, big, giant factory farm, which is not a pretty place, by the way. And it's grown with these organic pesticides and herbicides. It's grown in nutrient depleted soil just by the very nature of the mass amount that they need to produce. And it's no longer that nutrient dense, very healthy superfood that spinach, you know, that our grandparents in our age bracket would have eaten, right? So it almost leaves you this sort of, <laughs> I don't want to say hopeless, but it's its just sort of this, what what do I do, right? And it's its just doing the best we can. And I've wanted to kind of segue into this. Okay, we, we have this poor degraded food source. It probably does have some trace pesticides in there, and we're going to wash it and clean it and do the best that we can. What are your feelings on supplementation? Can is are there supplements that I can take, or am I, is that still? Am I just all I'm doing then is taking something that's been it's got pesticides in it and concentrating and drying it down? 
looking for an I'm looking for an answer here, uh, Ray. Work with me. What, um, what can I do? So two two antioxidants have been studied pretty rigorously: vitamin E and coenzyme Q10, which some of your listeners might know improves mitochondrial function. First thought to improve mitochondrial function, which is thought to be impaired and almost universally impaired in Parkinson's disease, air pollution, certain pesticides, and trichloroethylene, these dry thin chemicals all impair mitochondrial function. Good reason to think of these things might be beneficial. Unfortunately, large scale clinical trials, at least in people with early Parkinson's disease, have shown them not to be a benefit. So there's nothing we can really recommend as far as a supplement that we know um, is beneficial. It would be fantastic if we did. Importantly, no one's looked, to my knowledge, at looking using these antioxidants earlier. You know, you have the person who grew up on the farm and drank the pesticide contaminated well water. They don't have Parkinson's issue that you can consider antioxidants. I think the key thing would be considering uh, exercise, considering uh, your diet, and considering avoiding future exposure uh, to these toxicants. You know, we you were alluding to, and I thought you were going to even a broader issue. You know, I went to medical school in the late 1990s, and it's concerning that today and 2024, life expectancy in the United States is lower than when I was in medical school. We spend 50% more on healthcare than we did when I was in a medical school. Rates of cancer among people under 50, so below our age, is rising. That's front page story of the Wall Street Journal. And we need to ask why. And why is this happening? And, and I, I think part of the explanation is, you know, we're not getting worse in terms of treatments. I think we're getting worse in terms of toxicants. And the air pollution has gotten better, but, you know, the use of pesticides is increasing. Use of these uh, dry cleaning chemicals is still huge. There are thousands of contaminated sites uh, throughout the country, including three within five to 10 minutes of where I live in suburban Rochester in a neighborhood filled with doctors and lawyers. Uh, and that's not even mentioning what's going on in the cities. So there are lots and lots of exposure to these toxicants, including possibly in our food supply and other things that might be explaining why our life expectancy and health is decreasing, why rates of cancer are increasing. Um, despite spending 50% more on healthcare um, than we did 25 years ago, we spend 50% more on healthcare than any other country in the world. In fact, I think the United States spends more on healthcare than all of Europe uh, combined, and we have a lower life expectancy than most European nations. Yeah, there's there does seem to be this perfect storm of this very degraded food supply. Most of us, I think it's the now the average American eats on average 70% of processed and ultra-processed foods. We're no longer eating whole foods. We've just discussed that even the whole foods we are eating are degraded from the foods they were even just a couple of generations ago. And to your point, there's this ubiquitous toxic soup all around us because it's it's not just the air pollution and the dry cleaners and the pesticides, but I think most of us in our homes could walk in our bathrooms and put our hands on dozens and dozens of toxicants, right? Um, in our kitchens, in our in our uh, laundry rooms, etc. So we're surrounded by these, and, and you know, you hear very smart PhDs come on and you know make these Instagram posts and say, "Hey, the the you know the poison is in the dose. Don't be silly. You're underarm deodorant; it's not doing you any harm." And I would probably agree. the The body's pretty amazing at detoxing itself. We have it's it's made to do that, but it's just this unending and unrelenting, not just quantity, but just this vast mixture. We're in this toxic soup now, right? So it's not just my deodorant. It's the soap that I'm putting on. It's the shampoo. If you're a lady, you've got the, the makeup and things all just in the in the bathroom. And then we, you know, we go out and we have our non-cook, our non-stick cookware. 
and we're just surrounded by all these toxicants. And I, I, I do agree that there, there's, as we, as we rely more and more on these types of things that are marketed to us as safe to the average consumer, that I, there, there is a certainly a positive correlation between that and declining health, whether that's Parkinson's disease, neurological disease, or just ill health, meta, ill metabolic health in general. Is that fair? Yeah, and the worst thing is we're subsidizing it. I, right. The people who are to pesticides, they're not paying for the health consequences of someone getting Parkinson's right. disease or ALS. The people are paying for it. Medicare spends taxpayers, you know, all of us spend $25 billion, $25,000 per person with Parkinson's, $25 billion per year. That Guardian report estimates that the global sales of Paraquat is $400 million. So if Paraquat were just responsible for 2% of Parkinson's in the United States. That's $500 million. So that means taxpayers are paying more to care for people, minus, I'm not talking about the suffering of the person, just for healthcare, for people with Parkinson's disease, than the company's realizing not in profits, but in sales uh, of it. So we're subsidizing the use of these toxicants on ourselves. You know, we've realized that, you know, if people are going to smoke, that's fine. That's their decision in the United States, but they're going to pay. And they're going to pay because form of taxes, because we know that smoking is unhealthy behavior. And we know that uh, other people are going to be sharing in the cost of that. If we're going to continue to use these toxins at the minimum, we should require that the companies pay for the, uh, the health effects associated with their chemical and stop uh, asking people to suffer, to subsidize it with their personal suffering and with expenditures on health. That's very well said. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I 100% agree that the unfair burden is, is upon us to pay for all of this. And there are people that are making a lot of money in a, in a lot of these areas without any consequence. It's yeah. It's ridiculous. And we'll make better decisions. If we stop the subsidy, we'll make better decisions and we'll, we will. you know, it'll become financially advantageous to come up with ways right. of not using these toxicants. And what a wonderful world it would be to have fewer toxicants, healthier lives, less healthcare expenditures less suffering, more independence, longer lives. I mean, these are all wonderful things that we should be doing, but we got to be just really rational uh, about it and uh, look at it for exactly what's happening and the subsidies for toxicants. Okay. So, I mean, is there, I, I'm ignorant in this, but is there a movement afoot to make that so? Like we, we have a tax on gas, we have a, you know, we have a high tax on cigarettes now in the United States. Is there a lobby that's pushing for this? Is there a movement that's saying, hey, if you produce these things that are known contributors to ill health, then you've, you've got this extra tax, you've got this extra fee, anything like that? Yeah. So there's some progress. We'll give some good news. Uh, so about two or three years ago, the EPA banned a pesticide called chlorpyrifos, widely used on apples, widely used on golf courses, widely used on utility poles, fences, and the like. This chemical is associated with Parkinson's disease and its estimates have cost 25 million kids, 17 million IQ points, 25 million kids, 17 million IQ wow. points. And the EPA banned it. Unfortunately, the maker, I think the maker of it, sued in court and the court sent it back to the EPA to be re-reviewed, re uh, even though it's uh, been associated with Parkinson's disease and intellectual disabilities. Um, EPA uh, last year proposed a ban on perchlorethylene, the chemical widely used in dry cleaning, a phase out of its use in dry cleaning over the next 10 years, and proposed a ban on trichlorethylene, which is known to cause cancer, causing cancer for the last 100 years, uh, and is associated with a 500% increased risk of Parkinson's disease. There's a proposed ban, so it'd be great to uh, make those bans uh, permanent. 
Senator Cory Booker, whose father died of uh, Parkinson's disease, has introduced a bill in the Senate that would ban, effectively ban Paraquat and improve uh, the regulation of pesticides. There hasn't been much traction behind that. Congresswoman Jennifer Wexon, a Democrat uh, from Virginia who has a, a bad form of Parkinsonism called progressive supernuclear palsy, and Senator Gus Billy Rackus, whose brother died of Parkinson's, a, a Republican from Florida, led the House to vote 407 to 9 to pass uh, a bill to create a national plan to end Parkinson's disease. Hopefully that bill will be taken up in the Senate, would direct the Department of Health and Human Services to come up with a plan to prevent and end Parkinson's disease. I think we could actually do that. And I think we could actually do that in our generation, prevent most people from ever developing Parkinson's disease. So there are movements afoot. If any of your listeners are really fired up, they should join the PD Avengers, a global grassroots organization founded by three people who have Parkinson's disease. It's founded by, run by, led by uh, people with Parkinson's disease. They can just go to pdaventures.com and sign up. It's free to do so. I think 6,000 uh, members from 90 plus countries and 100, over 100 organizations have signed up to be a PD Avenger. I'm a member of the organization. So I think there's lots and lots of things that we can do to change the course, just like Candace Leitner changed the course of drinking and driving. You know, yeah. one thing you don't have to tell kids in this generation is not to drink and drive. They think, well, self-evident that you wouldn't drink and drive. Who would do such a thing? And, you know, if we can do that in the course of a generation, why can't we do the same thing for Parkinson's? Right on. I absolutely love it. All right. Well, Ray, I, I want to wrap up talking a little bit more about, you mentioned the treatment and management, but before we get there, I did want to ask, is there a genetic component? Has anybody done these studies? Am I, could I be genetically predisposed to Parkinson's disease? And if so, does I'm guessing epigenetics would certainly be a factor whether I actually developed it or not. But has, how does genetics play into Parkinson's disease? So Sir, William, so Sir William Gowers, the guy who wrote the Bible of Neurology in the late 1800s in England, he wrote a case series of people with Parkinson's disease. And he said of the, I think, 200-some individuals he had with Parkinson's disease, he was character for Parkinson's disease. 15% had a family history of the disease. And numerous studies since that time have confirmed that 15 to 20% of people with Parkinson's disease have a family history of the disease, suggesting that there indeed is a genetic component for a subset, a minority of individuals with Parkinson's disease. And that's the case. So about 15% of people have an identifiable genetic risk factor for the disease. However, only in one to 2% of cases is that genetic risk factor enough for them to develop the disease. And that's usually in people with early onset of disease, especially in their 30s, which is extra extraordinarily rare, who, have, who, who likely have a strong genetic component to doing it. The rest of the genes are in and of themselves insufficient to develop Parkinson's disease. So the most common genetic mutation is so linked to Parkinson's disease is LARG2, gene called LARG2. But lifetime risk of developing Parkinson's disease is somewhere between 30 and 40%. Said another way, most people who carry this genetic mutation, the most common genetic mutation that causes Parkinson's disease, don't develop the disease. So there have to be other environmental factors tied yeah. to it and it, or genetic factors. It turns out that almost every genetic factor tied to Parkinson's disease has a known interaction with pesticides, for example, or these other environmental toxicants. So they might be a good explanation for why some individuals who are exposed to these toxicants develop Parkinson's disease, while some do not. So it is an important factor, likely for 15 to 20% of individuals, overwhelming majority of people, no clear identifiable genetic risk factor for it, but for a subset is important. And for those individuals 
it may explain why some of them might be more likely to develop the disease if they're exposed to a toxic than others. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Thanks for that. And let's, let's kind of wrap up here a little bit with talking about the treatment and the care. Now, it's my understanding this is a progressive disease. It doesn't have a cure. So if somebody has Parkinson's disease, is it, is it fair to say that it's just going to, their, their condition will continue to worsen over their lifetime or, and what do, what are the treatments? What does that look like? So we talked a lot about diet and exercise. So those are things we've also yeah. talked to, just like if you're a smoker, you're diagnosed with lung cancer. The first thing the doctor tells you to do is to stop smoking. And I think the first thing we should be telling patients is to stop getting exposed to environmental toxins. So if I had Parkinson's, I would be like adamant about uh, avoiding uh, pesticides and other uh, toxins and dry cleaning, uh, especially with these uh, chemicals. There are green dry cleaners that don't use these chemicals. Next, medications. There are, we mentioned that Parkinson's is loss of nerve cells in brain that produce a chemical called dopamine. We have a medicine called levodopa, which is just a precursor to that dopamine. Highly effective. can actually make people with early Parkinson's disease better. So they take the medicine and they don't get just less worse. They just get, frankly, better. And that works really well for people. Unfortunately, the disease continues to progress over time. The number of nerve cells that continues to die off. So you need higher and higher dose of medicine, greater and greater risk of side effects, less and less favorable, favorable response. In addition to medications, there are surgeries, something called deep brain stimulation. It's kind of wild. You stick an electric uh, wire down into your brain and you stimulate a different, uh, a certain part of the brain that decreases the firing of nerve cells from that certain gathering of uh, neurons. And it's beneficial. It's a game changer for individuals who have Parkinson's who respond well to the medications and then develop complications. And it, it can be a game changer. It kind of turns back the clock five to 10 years. Uh, but we shouldn't sugarcoat Parkinson's disease. In the words of Michael J. Fox, it sucks. In the words of former NBA basketball player Brian Grant, it sucks. So Parkinson's sucks. And it's the 14th leading cause of death in the United States. 100 Americans will die with Parkinson's disease today. 200 Americans will be diagnosed at least with the disease uh, today. So it's a bad disease. And, you know, you know, for the first five to 10 years, it can be reasonably well-managed, but, you know, a long time of Parkinson's is anyone who's seen Michael J. Fox and any of these documentaries, it's rough and it stinks. And we shouldn't sugarcoat the suffering that individuals with Parkinson's, their family, their caregivers are all suffering with this disease. And I think the vast majority of this suffering is preventable, needless and avoidable. And that's why I spend a lot of time and effort. Really glad to be on your show uh, to let make people aware that we can prevent it. You know, suffering is part of life. But needless preventable suffering, we should uh, prevent and end it. You know, we don't sit around w- wishing that we had smallpox or wishing that we had more drinking and driving or you know, that HIV wasn't preventable. These are all great achievements that we've made in our lifetimes. And I think we can do exactly the same thing for Parkinson's. All right. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. And I, I, I agree wholeheartedly there with you. I, I think that if it's within our power to change this, and it sounds like it certainly is, that it is, we have this moral obligation to, to do so. Let's, let's just wrap up with this. Do you see, and I'm just asking for conjecture here, um, do you see a day where technology saves us? In other words, it seems to me the technology, and I'm talking about technology of you know these chemicals that we use, better living through chemistry, so to speak. Do you see a day where there's this kind of technological utopia where we come up with drugs or whatever the technology looks like, some future technology we haven't yet perceived, where we can just out 
outmaneuver the damage that we've done through all these, say, environmental toxins specifically or degraded food supply. In other words, will will big pharma save us? Will some other medical technology save us from things like brain diseases? Or probably not so much. Are we going to really have to wind back, undo what we've done? I think we're trying to cure a preventable disease. We're, if you look at where research is being funded, 98% is trying to find better treatments or better understanding of the disease. Only 2% is trying to prevent it. The number of people with HIV have been cured. Do you know how many people with HIV have been cured? I do not. There's three. There are three individuals in the history of medicine that we know that have been cured from HIV. They got like bone marrow transplants. They got cells that end up being resistant to infection with the virus. Do you know how many people we've prevented from getting HIV? Yeah. Okay. Got, you know, we'll million. I have yeah, a million. Right. Sure. And yep. you know what? Like now, you know, you know, you know what the technology is have, that's prevented you know millions of people from getting HIV, including you and possibly me. It's a condom, and uh, you know, changes in sexual practices, changes in blood donation practices, you know, safer practice with needles and the like, especially for any drug users. And the media, or, the awareness uh, you know, that goes around that. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. And so we've changed. You know, Candace Leitner, when drinking driving, she didn't say we need better uh, trauma center. She didn't say we need better ambulances. She didn't say we need better spinal cord rehab center. She didn't say we need cars that inflate up and make us into a balloon. You know, all those things can be beneficial. I'm not saying that they're not potentially beneficial, but she addressed the root cause of the disease. If we address the root cause of the disease, like we did with HIV, like we've done with polio, if, you know, we don't cure polio, we just, vast majority of the world just doesn't get polio because we prevent people from ever getting it. If we did the same thing for Parkinson's disease, if we thought to try to prevent instead of trying to cure the disease, if we invested, we're going to need to invest more, but we invested more money in trying to prevent it, we would just not have Parkinson's disease. You know, I don't want to be cured of prostate cancer. I don't want to get prostate cancer. I don't want to become antigen. I don't want to become incontinent. I just don't want to get prostate cancer. I don't want to hang out with the doctors, quite frankly. And I think we need the exact same thing for Parkinson's disease. If we stop using the environmental toxins, if we start using pesticides that aren't linked with Parkinson's disease, if we stop using dry cleaning chemicals that don't cause cancer and aren't linked to Parkinson's disease. I mean, think about the risk benefit. We're doing this for what purpose? For dry cleaning? Really? Yeah. We're doing this for pesticides? For food? Really? For weed? Really? We can get rid of it. If we breathe cleaner air, I mean... The Global Burden of Disease Study estimates that air pollution is the leading source of disability as a risk factor. More than high blood glucose, more than high blood pressure is air pollution. We can change air pollution in really short periods of time. And, you know, in, during COVID-19, during the shutdown, people in India saw the Himalayan mountains for the first time. In, in L.A., you could see the San Gabriel Mountains like for the first time. It was just remarkable the benefits just to our quality of life. From having clean air, clean water, and clean food. You know, these things are not necessary for a thriving society. And in fact, I mean, these toxins aren't necessary for a thriving society. Clean air, clean food, and clean water are. We should be investing tons and tons of resources and money into making sure that we have clean air, clean food, and water. Our kids will have fewer intellectual disabilities, likely less autism. We'll all have less Parkinson's disease, likely less ALS, likely less Alzheimer's disease, less brain cancer, less prostate cancer, less breast cancer, the list goes on and on. Uh, leukemia from all of this, if we just get clean air, clean food and clean water. And this is something everyone wants. Everyone recognizes that it's not good to breathe in dirty air, orange air. Everyone realizes that the sky should be blue, not brown. 
Everyone realizes that your water shouldn't have a smell to it. Everyone realizes that your water shouldn't have lead. Everyone realizes that excessive use of pesticides is not good for our health. These are things with near universal agreement. We just need a society and as individuals to demand that these changes are made and we'll all live longer, healthier lives and stop spending less spending 20% of our GDP on healthcare. Very, very well spoken, sir. And I love that statement. We're trying to cure a preventable disease. And man, are we good at that. But you know, it occurs to me as you're saying that, that there's a reason for that. There's a lot of money in curing preventable and, and, and just having that, let me treat your symptoms because now you're a cash cow. You're a lifetime customer. Is there, and I'm not, I don't want to put on the full on tinfoil hat here, but is there a financial reality that you're up against that's overcomable? I mean, the amount of money we're talking here isn't hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. It's billions. It's trillions when you add in all of healthcare and pharma together that, I mean, let's face it, if everybody to tomorrow just woke up healthy and stayed that way, and let's just say metabolically healthy, we'd be, we'd be in financial ruin in this, in this country, right? Because so much of our finances depended upon these giant, ugly industries here that have grown up around us. Do you feel like there's pushback for somebody like you saying? Yeah, I think we'd be financially thriving. If we didn't have Parkinson's, we wouldn't be spending $25 billion a year on healthcare. So uh, Medicare spends $25 billion a year on caring for people with Parkinson's disease. The NIH, National Institutes of Health, spends $250 million on research for Parkinson's disease. So for every dollar we spend caring for people with Parkinson's disease, we spend a penny on research. So for every dollar we spend on caring for someone with Parkinson's disease in the United States, we spend a penny of taxpayer dollars on research uh, at the disease. If we reoriented ourselves to stopping to trying to cure a preventable disease and stop to prevent a preventable disease, we would save lots and lots of money that could be used for any number of wide things to give universal basic income, could you know create better schools, create better jobs, whatever you want, just give people tax cuts, whatever you want to be done, and we would live longer, healthier lives. You know, why are we, why are... Well, the, I, Ray, I'll tell you, I'll, devil's advocate here. I'll tell you why. Because somebody's making billions of dollars. Stockholders are getting rich off of yeah, sick people. So just, let's play this so, out. Let's look at diabetes. Right. So yep. we we know what some of the major causes of diabetes sure. are, right? Just take fast food. You know, I don't think it's like rocket science that, you know, you know, in 1990, only 10% of Americans were obese. Today, it's 35%. Yep. It isn't willpower. It, but, you know, right. we also have lots of willpower between 1990 and 2020 and 2020 is not genetics. You know, our genetics didn't change in the last 30 years, largely speaking. It's a change in our diets. And we're allowing people to sell food to us that we know is increasing our risk for diabetes. We're subsidizing their costs again. And then we go 100 miles, maybe 200 miles from a source of major fast food producer to buy drugs for diabetes. I mean, it's a virtuous cycle just from two cities that are located 200 miles apart from other. One is producing producing products that increase your risk of developing diabetes and one produces therapies to reduce the effects of, of, of diabetes. I mean, it's absurdity. I mean, it's what was that show with the little robot where, you know, people were sitting in front of watching screens, drinking Slurpees. I can't remember the TV show. There was a movie with the iRobot or something like that. And it's happening. If we just like look at this coldly, rationally, dispassionately, you will find that we can do live longer, healthier lives with very small changes to our environment and to our uh, society. If you just make 
people pay taxes, bear the burden of the cost of their products, you'll quickly see changes in it. We've seen it with tobacco. You know, we've seen an amazing decrease in the number of smokers. It is socially unacceptable to smoke. You can go to a bar and not be breathing in the toxic effects of secondhand smoke. Rates of lung cancer have plummeted. So at the same time as we have this great decrease in smoking, great decrease in smoking-related cancers, we're still seeing an increase in risk of cancers in people under 50, even in despite declines in smoking. So we should be saying, what are the other toxicants? We know that smoking was a major toxin. What are the other toxicants? Let's take rational steps to do- reduce them. Let's live longer, healthier lives. Let's stop subsidizing tobacco companies for their toxic effects and we'll live healthier lives. And who wants Parkinson's disease? Michael J. Fox has clearly says it sucks. You know, there isn't a better example, you know, a more humane human being who's devoted the last 20 years of his life to decreasing the stigma, to decreasing the burden of Parkinson's disease, to raising $2 billion, come up with better treatments for it. You know, we should honor that kind of sacrifice and that kind of courage by taking steps to prevent people from ever getting this disease. So if we can make Michael J. Fox better, we can prevent his kids from developing Parkinson's disease, his grandkids, and many other generations to come. These are enormous benefits that we can realize for future generations, just like we've received these gifts of a world that's largely free of polio, a world where drinking and driving is socially unacceptable, a world where HIV is preventable. In our lifetimes, we thought HIV was going to destroy society. You know, we got our act together because activists made their voices heard, including an activist group called ACT UP, making silence equals death. If we end our silence around Parkinson's disease, we can prevent needless and avoidable avoidable suffering that 1.2 million Americans are experiencing. Right on, man. You're preaching to the choir here. I'm a hundred percent with you. I feel like you're, I, I feel like the, the cards are stacked against us as we try to make these changes just because of the institution oh, and the it. money we there. Did, we did it with uh, a, a no, I, I, I love that you have those examples. Yeah. And that's, that's a great point. We have overcome it's that. Yep. Just have a lot, a lot of work to go. We just need to get up off the floor, get our voices, get, get our voices yeah. in order and demand change. If we don't demand change, the, the wrongdoers are only emboldened. If right. we don't demand change, the wrong users only embolden and they will do more and more. These chemicals are caused kids to have cancer. These chemicals have uh, caused people to have ALS, I think. These chemicals are increasing our risk for Parkinson's disease. We need to stop these subsidies. We need to hold wrongdoers accountable and we need to demand change. When we do all of that, we'll live longer, healthier lives, free of these terrible disease. Amen, brother. I absolutely love it. Love it. Love it. All right. So folks, lots of resources for you. Obviously, we talked in the intro about the book, Ending Parkinson's Disease. Definitely check that out. There you go. PDAvengers.com, I believe, was another good place. And then, Ray, where do you want to send people to who want to connect with you, maybe get involved, learn more about you? Where's the best place to point them? Thanks, Kevin. So first of all, all the authors are donating their proceeds from the book uh, to prevent end Parkinson's disease. So uh, if you can't afford a copy, you can buy it it's just on Amazon. It's widely available. It's in uh, libraries. It's in uh, some bookstores. If you can't afford a copy, uh, we'll send you one for free. If you can't afford a copy, just email me at info at endingpd.org. Info at endingpd.org. Just include your mailing address and we'll send you uh, a copy of it uh, for free. If you can't afford a copy, please buy one on Amazon. It, it uh, will increase funds and awareness uh, for the disease. If you have questions, if you I said something that was wrong and you know more about plumbing than I do, which a lot of people do, please let me know. Info at endingtv.org. If you have questions, if you have stories, I love, love, love stories. If you have stories about you know your 
family members served at Camp Lejeune and developed Parkinson's disease. I'd love to hear from you. If your cousin worked in dry cleaning and developed Parkinson's disease, I'd love to hear these stories or a cluster of people in your community about Parkinson's disease. Info at endingpd.org. I read everything that comes in and I try to reply uh, to many of them. So info at endingpd.org. The book is Ending Parkinson's Disease. If you can't afford a copy, we'll send you one for free. Just email us at info at endingpd.org. Fantastic. And folks, I will put all of that as well as some additional contact information into the show notes. You guys can find that there. Ray, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing not just your knowledge and your wisdom and all of this information about Parkinson's disease, but really your your passion and your love for this. It's very clear watching you and hearing you speak that this is something you've devoted your life to. And I just want to honor that and say thanks so much for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for making the health of everyone over 50 uh, healthier. As um, over 50, I'm delighted to have people like you out there paving the way and uh, enlightening us on how to live longer and healthier lives. Okay, that's our show for today, folks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I want to let you know that we have other free resources over at silveredgefree.com. There you'll find our free guides with our top tips on nutrition, exercise, and healthy lifestyle to assist you in your weight loss and fitness journey. So feel free to head over there and download anything that looks useful to you. I'll put links to everything we talked about in the show notes, and you folks can find those over at silveredgefitness.com slash 267. As we wrap up our time together today, you can show your support for this show in two important ways. The first is to tell a friend about this podcast and encourage them to give it a listen. The second is for you YouTube folks to click the like and subscribe buttons and for you podcast folks to please give this podcast a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and be sure to subscribe and follow so you don't miss any future episodes. I really appreciate you spending your time with me today and until next time, stay strong. Okay.